Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. This week we're talking about the single most celebrated writer in 20th century China, Lu Xun. After his death, Mao Zedong called him the saint of modern China, but he was one of the sharpest critics of both Chinese tradition and Chinese modernity, a patriot in revolutionary times who was incapable of political or aesthetic orthodoxy. Lu Xun is best known as a writer of fiction, a master of satire and irony, a pioneer of the modern language of Chinese literature. He was also a teacher, a scholar, a translator, a writer of prose poems and essays, and a formidable figure in the debates about politics, culture and language that formed the intellectual background to the Chinese revolution or revolutions. A nationalist and internationalist, he was part of an extraordinarily gifted and troubled generation of Chinese intellectuals at a time when being a writer involved exhilarating and dangerous choices in the real world. I'm talking today with Leo Li, Xinhua Gin Professor of Chinese Culture at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and one of the leading scholars in the world on the work of Lu Xun, and with Dr. Ruth Hong, who researches criticism and intellectual history in modern China and teaches in the English department at Baptist University. Leo, let me start with you and ask for a bit of biographical information. Lucien was born in 1881 in Zhejiang province. Can you tell us something about his background, education, upbringing? Well, Lucien came from a big gentry family uh, in the lower Yangtze area, uh, but in decline. Uh, his father uh, died uh, a very disgruntled scholar uh, when he was in his teens. In fact, he wrote about this. Uh, actually, the surname Lu, his pen name Lu, came from his mother. Right. So he was one of those people uh, in the so-called transitional generation who moved from this big traditional gentry family background to become a individualist, to leave the family, to go abroad. Uh, he took the exam. He was one of the last to take the uh, official examination. The imperial before, exams. That's right, mm. that, before it was published, mm. uh, before it was abolished. Yeah. Uh, and he was very, very frustrated by this. He mm. didn't like it at all. And then he went to Nanjing to study naval science, actually, mining and naval science, and read uh, some Chinese translations of uh, Western books of uh, Western science. So he might have... If things had worked out differently, he might have been a sailor. Well, naval science was uh, a broader discipline, actually. Mm. Uh, some of the famous translators, Yan Fu, for instance, mm -hmm. studied naval science there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but basically, they used that, uh, as in Japan, as a way of uh, getting to Western learning. Right. Uh, and also, there was a scholarship. Okay. So he got a scholarship to go to Japan to study. So from naval science... Uh, mining, engineering, he basically moved on to uh, Western medical science in so, Japan. Yeah. <clears throat> so he goes he goes to Japan and then decides to study medicine, or did he decide to study medicine and then go to Japan? Uh, well, it's hard to say. See, it's all <laughs> based on his own mm. uh, preface to his uh, short story collection. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that preface already in a in kind of a 
allegorical tongue. He wanted to save the Chinese people, yes. first the body and then the soul. So his, his medical medicine would be perfect. Also, his father died of tuberculosis, mm. so that he would like to save his father. Uh, he would like to study uh, Western medical science rather than traditional Chinese her medicine. Had he already started to write and publish by that time? A uh, couple of essays, but not much. It was not until he was in Japan that he gradually started to write, especially so, when he quit medical school right. after a couple of years. Yeah. So his early education must have been in a, a very con- traditional. Confucian That's right. classical education. Yeah, yeah, very traditional. Okay. But of course he was exposed to Western translations, Chinese translations, Mining, for instance, a two-volume work on geology uh, by uh, Lyle, uh, which I later on learned is a, is a standard textbook. Principles of geology. Principles of geology, <laughs> and that was translated. And then uh, this is a very important text for Darwin. For Darwin, right? Yeah. So, so you can see mm-hmm. that you know I was surprised to to, to read about that. And later, on, of course, uh, Huxley, others. T.H. Huxley. T.H. Huxley. So he's yeah. immersing himself in Western right, theories right. of evolution That's and right. science That's right. and so on. That's right. Mm-hmm. I turn to you, Ruth. Um, try to give us, if you can, some kind of background about uh, literary culture in China around about this time. This is the last, the very last years mm-hmm. of, of the empire. Yeah. What did it mean to be a, a man of le- or a woman of letters <laughs> at that time? Um, I would say in the case of Lucian and... Um, generation of younger revolutionary intellectuals of his time I would say choices personal choices and changes would be two important aspects Mm -hmm. to define the career and life of a um, Chinese literatus at the start of the 20th century I say choices I mean when he decided to go to Japan um, you look at how he has chosen to attend modern schools, um, to abandon traditional Chinese learning, um, to do natural sciences as well as to do um, to engage himself in Western learning. And he's also um, working and studying foreign languages. So these are deliberate choices that would mark him, um, that, that would differentiate him from um, what he might be, that is the class of gentry, a member of the class of gentry scholars. Okay, so um, w- when you say foreign languages, we mean what, Japanese? Uh, Japanese and German. And so German. when he, he went to Japan, yeah, he had to attend language schools before mm-hmm. he could start doing medicine. So mm-hmm. um, he did, actually, as, actually it's because of his learning of German, of German and Japanese that he um, started to read more world literatures um, so he's reading it in in German. Yeah, in German and right. in Japanese, and okay. because of his uh, this newly acquired languages, he could translate some Russian literature and intru- Russian literature and introduce this literary text to China. Mm. Um, but then it was not very successful, so not many people were interested in uh, so-called foreign literatures. Um, but then what made what made Lucian even more radical than the younger literary um, revolutionary intellectuals of his time is his ability to self-reflect. So that's why I say also changes. Um, he abandoned traditional Chinese learning um, for 
uh, in order to attend, I think he went to, when he was in Nanjing, he majored in geology mm-hmm. in the School of Mining and right, Railroad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, then he um, went to Japan to do medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of his disappointment with Chinese medicine, so uh, he was he's uh, he's able to reinvent himself by picking up a new kind of study. So the the idea of going to Japan to study mm. medicine would be in Japan you didn't have to do traditional Chinese medicine, right? You yeah, Western learning. Scientific. So a lot of yeah medicine. yeah a lot of people of, of the office. Uh, students of his generation would go abroad, and for him, the nearest place would be Japan because, of course, the Japanese had demonstrated to Lucian um, a grand way of engaging with the West without being defeated by the West. Mm, yes, very um, important. Model. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I'm hearing a very international outlook, a modern scientific kind of learning, and yet he's still profoundly a Chinese writer. Leo, would you say? In in some way, he is. Of course, once you are Chinese, you remain in Chinese. Uh, we don't know how much German uh, he was exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew German. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think major Japan, or late major Japan, when uh, uh, Lucian was there, uh, extracted quite a lot of Chinese uh, mm. students. Uh, and there was a number of disciplines available, mostly related to Western sciences, yeah. uh, including economics, uh, police science. Uh, mm. One writer studied police science, yeah. mining, medicine. Uh, but medicine, of course, was considered to be the pioneering discipline for a kind of a window for Western Science. I'd like to find out first. So we're about to move him back from Japan to China, yeah. an important moment in his career. Was it possible to make a living as a writer in China at that time? What were the how, where where were the publication outlets? Well, there were journals uh, uh, in the late Qing period. Mm-hmm. Namely, the first decade of the 20th century, there were quite a few journals, newspapers, mm-hmm. yeah. and people started to write and contribute. But uh, most of the journals featured rather popular stuff. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily elite journals, intellectual journals. So Lucian and his brother wanted to edit the journal in order to publish their own stuff, their own translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that journal sold very poorly. Uh, no more than 50 or 30 copies. 30 copies or something like that. 30 copies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Right. He uh, earned a living as a teacher when he okay. went back um, from Japan to China. So separate places, I think he, right. he went. Right. He went back and became yeah. a teacher, right? Yeah. University. Being a sort of, you know, the high school, the so-called high high school. normal school. Normal school, yeah. training for teachers. Right. Yeah. Right. So he, he actually learned a living more as a teacher. But then I think during, um, in the last decade of his life, he actually abandoned all institutional positions right. and became a professional writer, writing right. Dao and the, yeah. the, the Not until he went essays. to Shanghai in 1928. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was a late, later on a, a university professor uh, at Beijing. Right. Okay, so we've got him now poised for a literary career, but he doesn't yet quite know how to do it. Leo, I, in the title of your book on Lucian, you mm-hmm. mentioned The Iron House. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, that's from his famous uh, preface, uh, 
be his own guiding metaphor for his literary career. It comes from a conversation. It's a kind of intellectual, right? <clears throat> a kind of metaphor for his uh, intellectual enterprise, okay. namely enlightenment. That is to say, you bring light to a house darkened by its tradition, and that house seems to have no outlet. You know, it's, it's sealed. It's a house built no of windows. Iron. Yeah, uh, no oxygen. And then it's a sort of ironic twist, a kind of tragic sense of people being suffocated, uh, and yet somehow you have to bring light to it. So the kind of dilemma evolution. So uh, it, here's the allegory: the people are trapped inside the iron that's house. Right. The iron house is that's burning. Right. That's right. In that case, what, now, the iron house is not necessarily burning, but no. you you know people are soundly asleep. <laughs> because they are suffocating, and if you wake up one or two, what's the use of it? But then his friend said, well, you simply cannot be sure that one day will not be burnt down. He right. said, all right, in that case, I'll do it. This is the typical illusion, a kind of a dialectic, an ironic dialectic. Do you, do you think, um, sorry, this is a, a, a mean kind of question, but do you think that conversation actually happened, or do you think it's something that, that's invented? Nobody knows. I mm. think it's... a. Uh, you know, in his writing, probably something along that line, just like the slight incident, he, mm. he would, you know, mm. you know, apparently he watched a newsreel, uh, a news slide about uh, some Chinese police, uh, Japanese policemen killing Chinese peasants. This is the famous picture yeah, which he saw. That's right, the picture incident. Execution uh, that's right. of a Chinese by a Japanese that's soldier. Right. Everything seems to be allegorized. Yes. You know, yeah. turned into national algorithms by himself. Mm. Uh, when he went back from Japan to China, he uh, published uh, a couple of essays about his past, and then he published his Diary of the Madman, the famous um, first modern Chinese short story. And then it's only after that he published The Iron House. But I, I mean, when you talk about his politics, mm. I would say that at that point when he published after publication of the Diary of the Madman, a couple of years after that, when he's considering the Iron House, he's actually turning against the intellectual class. So he's not only criticizing China, I mean the Iron House, which is an allegory of China, obviously, but also those lighter sleepers mm. who were not trying to wake up um, the sound, uh, right. those who are sound asleep. So at that point, I think he's turning inward and turning against um, the the people in his own class and looking at how hypocritical they were, um, and by being dormant um, and laying the blame on the common people um, and absorbing the their responsibility for the national crisis. So I think this the myth. Um, 1920s, okay. but of course it became all radicalized um, in the 1930s. Okay, good. Mm. Let, let's go back a, a couple of steps because mm. you mentioned Diary of a Madman. Mm -hmm. This is what, one of his most famous mm. works. This is 1918. 1918. Can you yeah. tell Ruth? Tell us something about that, and particularly what was special about it? What was new about it? A couple of things. Um, the narrative, right? Um, the first person narrative, which is very special in the history of modern Chinese literature um, because the short story with a voice concentrating on the development of subjectivity um, is one of the things that you rarely see in traditional Chinese okay. um, oral storytelling culture. And the second thing would be the structure. 
It actually the story begins with um, a preface which is written in classical Chinese, um, and then you have the fictional diarists who would then write in the vernacular language. So this stark contrast between the vernacular and the preface would actually give you a three-dimensional vision of the Iron House, because the preface obviously is the Iron House, mm-hmm. which imprisons. Um, the vernacular language with the voice of the mm-hmm. common people. Yeah. So the story is enacting a, a development from a classical kind of Chinese literary language mm-hmm. to a vernacular style. And mm-hmm. this this is the crucial thing about that mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Um, Leo, tell us a bit about cannibalism in this story. Why is it about cannibalism? Well, he's turning a, a prevailing metaphor, uh, namely uh, Chinese customs and uh, tradition of cannibalistic. Uh, he turned that into a, uh, a set of uh, notes uh, of his reading, or set of his reading reports. You know, the man is doing readings, some readings. So it's very much like the current uh, uh, strategy of uh, doing reading, you know. You find this text, and you, you find other that you find all the layers of meaning. So this is his way of uh, supporting the Mayfair's cause of anti-traditionalism. So cannibalism is both real and not real. Real in the sense that there were in fact incidents, mm. the Mayfair sites uh, of cannibalism, uh, but it's also metaphoric in a sense that. Uh, uh, Chinese tradition, in a Mayforce point of view, uh, as a whole, seems to suffocate people. It's like eat people up. Okay, so uh, in they are devoured. She, <coughs> their senses are devoured by Chinese tradition. She. So in the story, the madman comes to believe that everyone in his village right. is a cannibal. This is supposed to be himself. one of the first cases of uh, persecution complex. <laughs> <laughs> paranoia. In fact, he used the term paranoia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one of the few things he got from studying medicine in Japan. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. So we never really know, strictly speaking, whether the madman is is the madman, or whether in fact he's really the only sane and yeah. morally. Most Chinese person. scholars consider madman to be simply a spokesman for revolutionary ideas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but actually, uh, some of the Western scholars considered this whole structure to be uh, quite authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a madness raving, so to speak. Yeah. Which uh, is the, the and the quotations are from diverse sources, mm-hmm. including Nietzsche, Zarathustra, yeah. and quite a few other things. So mm-hmm. the structure, as Ruth suggested, the structure is very new. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a satire. It's a, it's a satire of the traditional mode of writing BG, of mm-hmm. notes, of mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. notes. Right. Uh, in a kind of defined way, it's going against the grand tradition of writing reading reports by people like Zhu Xi and uh, mm-hmm. all the new yeah. Confucians. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. They learn about the West, wisdom, but of course the Mammon only learns about cannibalism. Okay, In so other words, Chinese wisdom becomes cannibalistic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's the unreliable narrator. Okay, now, uh, Leo mentioned the May 4th movement. The, mm-hmm. um, Ruth, uh, see if you can um, just help us to place Lucian in relation to the May 4th movement and the other writers involved in it. Well, the main form of is against Chinese traditionalism and feudalism, right? Um, this is 1919, right? 1919, yeah. yeah. Um, and when he um, started 
to involve himself in the movement. I think he, well, of course, he published, contributed his diary of the madman to new Xinjiang, new youth, um, which is quite remarkable, a bold attempt, because this is a revolutionary literature. Um, And of course, he also um, helped advocating um, the reform of Chinese language. Um, but then I always find that his contribution to the Mayfair is more in his own personal choice, for example, the way he dressed himself. So after he uh, returned from Japan to China, he uh, was in, first in, um, before he went to Shaoxing, he went to Hang, um, Hangzhou, right? Um, where, um, uh, he was working as interpreter of the um, in, the, in the in the modern schools mm-hmm. um with a lot of japanese presence um but then they, after after that he went to Shaoxing, his hometown um at that time he was the only faculty member who is dressed in western clothes um captain starch and actually uh, went around without the 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 cube Mm-hmm. Um, this made him very, very different from the rest of the house. And actually, by the end of this experience in Hangzhou, he said that he um, was worse than a foreign devil. He was a traitor the, um, of, of, of uh, whose, whose, whose soul has been um, sold out to the um, to the devil, so uh, to the foreign devil, he called. Um, so I think, in the way his contribution to the May Fourth would be enlightenment, would be the way um, he served as a model for his own students um, in the application of Western training and in the um, way he's against Chinese traditionalism. Um, okay, let's continue a bit with with his mm-hmm. fiction. He. I think never wrote a novel. He, he's someone who specializes in short, stories short fiction. Right, right. Um, Leo, tell us some more about his stories, and particularly you might tell us about a cue. Uh, that's the big um, figure, fictional figure that he has invented, a uh, cue. Uh, his brother argues that cue actually means the cue. The letter Q, but it's also the, the letter Q, Q, Q that goes like the, the, the pigtail. That's one way of saying it. Right. Uh, another way would be uh, saying that it's like Don Quixote, right? Uh, mm. You have something yes. like that. In other words, it's a prototype. It's Again, it's an allegorical type uh, that Luxin intentionally tries to create so that when the first when the book first, uh, uh, the, the story was first published, everybody thought that that the Akio refers to, to the reader, to to, mm. to him or her. Yeah. yeah. So it suddenly he created a kind of a negative national mm. type, uh, a body without a soul, a peasant uh, who makes a living without doing anything. Eventually, this peasant Akio is drawn into a revolution, into the vortex of revolution, not knowing a thing about what it means, and eventually is executed for all the wrong reasons. So in other words, for somebody without ideas, without thinking, you basically become the victim of this revolutionary turmoil. Lucien was very pessimistic about the 1911 revolution, the Republican revolution. He didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was still quite in a bad mood uh, throughout the 10s and the 20s. Mm-hmm. 
uh, when most is depressed. Yeah, actually, he's most very of, depressed. Yeah. You know, most of his uh, pet projects didn't get realized. Mm. Uh, it was not until in the uh, late eighties, at late ni- nineteen twenty-eight, early thirties, mm-hmm. that his spirits really picked up. This he became in, a, a full-round critic. In the liter- on the literary <coughs> scene of China. Mm. Well, uh, he had his ups and downs. He had his falling out with his brother. Mm-hmm. They were very yeah. close, and, and suddenly he wrote one of the, to me, the great masterpieces of modern Chinese literature, mm-hmm. a collection of prose poetry mm-hmm. called Wild Grass, uh, which rivals Baudelaire, in my view. To, uh, tell us about this, because I, I, this is the aspect of his work that I find most difficult to relate to. These, you call them prose poems. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like essays, short, short prose he pieces. He got that exactly from Baudelaire, because Baudelaire was translated. So the prose poem was a French concept ah. introduced into China, mm-hmm. but Lu Xun twisted for his own purposes, mm-hmm. uh, so that some of the images, in fact, were not Western, but Chinese, mm-hmm. from Buddhism, for instance. The dreams were, laid, were heavily laden with Buddhist images. Uh, so he really created a kind of imagistic world uh, composed of uh, short sentences mm-hmm. full of images. So he intentionally caused that uh, prose poetry prose as opposed poetry. to classical Chinese poetry, yeah. which is not prose, which has rhyming patterns strictly mm-hmm. structured, organized. Mm-hmm. But this some, is somewhat freer, uh, and yet it is not narrative. Although in one of the two pieces in the collection, uh, uh, there is a kind of story. Mm-hmm. But the story sort of stops at the end, or without the end. It's curious that uh, towards the end of his career, he more or less stopped writing short stories yeah. of the conventional right. kind. Right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and is instead producing prose poems um, with a political He did content. only one collection. He couldn't do any prose poems either. In the 1930s, he wrote only essays. Yeah, mm. yeah, he yeah. Well, in the last decade of his career and actually life, he actually stopped writing literary pieces, creative pieces. Mm-hmm. He started um, mm-hmm. writing Darwin, the miscellaneous essays, or the simply Darwin. essays. He compared right. his essays to daggers, right? Yeah. And he, but then it is also in, at that time that he was in Shanghai in direct con, uh, contact with revolutionaries, with left-wing writers. He was made the co-founder of the League of Left-Wing Writers. Mm. Um, and at that point of his life, I think he considered um, the essays um, most effective as a critique of society, as a way to be polemical, um, to be... But then it is also because of the essays that he was made by the Communist Party and the partisan writers um, as a co-founder of uh, okay, new literature. So, uh, there's an interesting pattern, isn't it? He, mm-hmm. he abandons medicine for right. fiction. Now he's abandoned fiction, fiction. For, for more political for kind of writing. writing. For, yeah. for right. criticism. Right. Um, is this because he's... he's He's more and more driven by a political agenda, Leo? Did, well, did that's a standard uh, interpretation, but I beg to differ from that uh, because Lu Xin is one of those people who uh, were very conscious of uh, the invention of the form, that is say, mm-hmm. what form fits him, mm-hmm. fits his purposes. You know, the prose essay is a typical case. Nobody else did that mm-hmm. uh, except Lu Xin. Why should we still read Lu Xin? I think he 
continues to have meaning for us. Some will consider him to be a kind of a typical national writer. He speaks for the Chinese soul. You know, he gives mm-hmm. a collective portrait. Others will see, as I do, a kind of a heavily inventive, original, modernistic, uh, experimental with styles. Without Lu Xun, you will not have the richness of modern Chinese literature. That that would be a good point for us to to finish. So, uh, Ruth Hong, Leo Lee, thank you both very much indeed for talking to us about Lu Xun, and thank you for listening. <laughs>